Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Cameron Adams. Cam is a Canals Marine Policy Fellow in the office of Senator Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware. Cam is the primary author of a new bipartisan bill that will create a position of a chief resilience officer that would be responsible for the drafting of a national adaptation plan. I've talked frequently about the need for a national plan, so this is an excellent development. Cam will discuss why Congress is interested in establishing a national plan. We hear about the history of the bill, how it complements executive branch actions on adaptation, and his own history of being an adaptation professional. It's a great conversation that demonstrates adaptation is truly coming of age. Okay, upcoming episodes. Dr. Elizabeth Matsui from the Federal Reserve Bank joins the podcast and we'll discuss some recent research she's done on community development and climate resilience. Crystal Skillman, an award-winning playwright, comes on to talk about climate communication and a new climate play she's written that's being performed in London and coming soon to New York. And Dr. Amy Brady, the cli-fi climate fiction queen, is coming on to be co-host with me on that. Looking forward to that. We'll also discover how Colorado is approaching climate adaptation. There's some great stuff on the way. Okay, let's join Cameron Adams and learn how Congress is thinking about encouraging adaptation across the land. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back. Today, we have a very exciting episode. Joining me is Cameron Adams. Cam is a Canals Marine Policy Fellow in the office of Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. Cam is focused on climate resilience and adaptation efforts in the U.S. Congress. Hi, Cam. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Doug. Thanks so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here. I've been a, a listener for a while, so big honor to join you today. Thank you so much for being a listener. I'm very excited to talk to you. You're my first Senate staffer, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. There's some big things happening legislation-wise, and that's why we have you on. But first, just give us a little bit of background. What do you do there in the senator's office? Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm a Canals Marine Policy Fellow. This is a, a really cool program run through NOAA that places early career scientists in federal offices, mostly in federal agencies, but there's also a small group of us that end up in Congress. And so I have a, a one-year position with the senator on his energy and environment team. And our team covers a lot of different issues in the climate policy realm. It's a pretty big priority for Senator Coons. We focused a lot in the past on sort of the climate mitigation side of things and how are we tackling our emissions to try to broadly decarbonize. But increasingly, Senator Coons has been really interested in doing more work in the sort of resilience and adaptation side of things. It's because Delaware is a really vulnerable state. And that's my background as a professional and a scientist. And so he brought me on to try to build out that part of the portfolio a little bit during my fellowship year. I'll just quickly mention at the outset also that although I'm obviously here chatting with you today about my work in the Senate, all my comments are going to be my own opinions and perspectives on these issues. And I'm not necessarily speaking on behalf of Senator Coons or his office. Okay, so you, you got into it a little bit there, but I think for those who aren't really un they understand how Congress works, do you, you work for the senator, but you're also working for the committee and the committee is the ones drafting legislation. How does that all work in, in regards to how you dedicate your time? Yeah, absolutely. I will say I knew so little about how Congress functions before starting this job. So happy to sort of walk through it a little bit. We have in our office different policy teams that focus on particular issues, and, and these are staff members that work in the senator's personal office. And so my team is the, the energy and environment team. We have a whole host of fellows and some permanent staff, and we cover broadly all the topic areas under that umbrella of energy and environment. 
for your typical member of Congress, that person will sit on a number of committees and each committee deals with particular set of topics, legislative priorities, and they have jurisdiction over certain agencies and federal activities and bills that are introduced into Congress are ultimately referred to committees. And so committees will do a lot of the work to kind of develop legislation and ultimately what's to go through the process of what's called marking it up, voted out of committee before it has the chance of being kind of swept into broader packages of legislation to be voted on and hopefully passed. And so there's always a dynamic of the personal office staff working on these issues, but then also depending on which committee your member sits on kind of working hand in hand with committee staff as well to push these priorities forward. Senator Coons is is on a number of committees and he's able to kind of leverage his positions on those committees to do environmental work in a lot of really creative ways. He also co-chairs a bipartisan caucus. And this is a, a, a sort of ad hoc group that senators sometimes set up on particular focus areas that aren't, aren't necessarily committees, but they're groups of senators that come together, kind of coalescing around a, a legislative priority that they're all interested in. For Senator Coons, our big priority in the work that we do, particularly on climate, is around finding bipartisan solutions to climate policy. And so Along with Senator Mike Braun, Senator Coons co-founded a bipartisan climate solutions caucus in the Senate, seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and we meet monthly to discuss our priorities, try to find common ground, discuss pending legislation, and, and we have expert speakers that come in. These are closed-door meetings where senators can speak their mind and, and ask questions off the record. And so my office, my team in particular, does a lot of work with our caucus to try to push forward the great work that we're doing there. Speaking of bipartisanship, I want to get to that later. I think that's very exciting for this bill specifically. Uh, Hopefully that increases its odds. But, you know, there's a lot going on in the executive branch on climate adaptation. So why pass congressional legislation? Sure. So there is a lot happening. You're right about that. And, And we are excited about the great work that the Biden administration is doing, particularly on adaptation right now. But obviously, we've been through a period where we've seen kind of an oscillation between administrations where adaptation has risen as a priority or kind of been not addressed as much, particularly during the Trump administration. And so the goal for us, particularly on climate, which can be a divisive issue, is always to try to find policies that we can enact that are durable. And so by identifying policies that we can put into legislation that hopefully passes into law, we're ensuring that consistency between administrations and particularly on the bipartisan front, we're ensuring policies that we can all agree to that will let us kind of set up structures to deal with climate change in this case that offer consistency and a durability into the future so that we're not left with that uncertainty about what is the next administration going to do on this. Great answer, because a lot of us are nervous about that. You know, with each new administration, there sweeps out old priorities. So that that's fantastic. OK, let's just jump right in this. What's in this bill? And, you know, the, the bill has a lot of content. We're not going to go through all of it, but sort of at the 30,000 foot level. What are you trying to accomplish with this bill? Great. Yeah. So when I joined the senator's team, I mentioned that we were trying to do some work to, to build out policy on climate resilience broadly. And so the most important thing to do as a congressional staffer, particularly in a personal office, is to always make sure that the work that we're doing is addressing the needs of our constituents. So in this case, my boss is a senator from Delaware. And so one of the first things that I did was turn to our folks in state, both Senator Kuhn's staff there, also our partners in state government and local communities and organizations to get a better understanding of the challenges with climate vulnerability that we're experiencing with Delaware to make sure 
that whatever we're doing in, on my team is addressing those needs. And so talked a lot with, with stakeholders there and broadly heard kind of challenges, particularly in more rural, smaller communities with tapping into existing federal resources on climate adaptation and resilience in order to go out and do some, some work on the ground to build the resilience of the community. Talking about towns here who have very few staff, little technical capabilities, might not have funds on hand to hire consultants who are in some cases having challenges even submitting applications to federal grant programs, let alone being selected for funding. We actually have in Delaware a really fantastic regional climate collaborative called the Resilient and Sustainable Communities League. And this is an organization that has identified this as a big problem. And it's folks with technical expertise from across a bunch of different jurisdictions who have come together under Rascal to help these communities with technical assistance and guidance as they're seeking federal resources for adaptation. And so they're doing this great work and they've helped kind of fill this void. But it's obviously the need for that type of organization kind of illustrates a a problem that there's a, a fundamental challenge in the pipeline the flow of resources from the federal level down to the actual frontline communities to get the work done that we're seeing in Delaware and that I think is common across communities throughout the United States. And so we really wanted to design legislation that would try to address that need. At the same time, I was working at the beginning of this process with a lot of experts in the field. One of the first meetings I took when I started this job was with Alice Hill, who I know has been a, a frequent guest of this show and is a real thought leader in this space. And you know, she was talking about the need for this, this kind of national strategy, a more cohesive vision for the United States plan to adapt to climate change. And it's a call that I've just heard echoed from so many different corners of the adaptation world. And it seems to be a good fit for as a possible solution for the problems that we're seeing on the ground in Delaware and beyond developing sort of a broad national strategy and improving interagency coordination at the federal level, but ultimately with those actions oriented towards the end user, making sure that our strategic vision at the federal level is really laser focused on what we need to do to make meaningful progress on the ground within frontline communities. And so really broad strokes, just kind of like you said, the high level view of what's in the bill. We recognized early on that we wanted to kind of raise the importance of of resilience at the federal level and centralize the leadership on this issue. And so the bill requires each president to appoint a chief resilience officer in the White House. This is not a new idea that we came up with. There's almost a dozen states that have CROs and many more that have sort of analogous positions under a different name that have done really great work at the state level. And so we sort of borrowed from that model and said, we need someone in the executive office of the president who is charged with leading our national resilience effort. The CRO would be required under the bill to convene interagency working groups and to work across all federal agencies to develop a national climate adaptation and resilience strategy. This strategy, as I mentioned, would kind of articulate our national vision for how we're going to respond to climate change and would seek really to get the federal agencies working together across agencies more than they are right now in order to kind of help those locals who are in need of assistance. A couple of just important parts of the bill for us really didn't want this to be a a sort of federal box checking exercise where a, a strategy comes out, but it isn't clear exactly how that's going to affect change on the ground. And so the bill also requires that an implementation plan would need to be published alongside with this national strategy to just clearly articulate who's in charge of what and how these strategies are translating into action on the ground. It's an important part of the bill for us. We also didn't want this to be developed in a federal echo chamber. 
as I've mentioned multiple times, this is meant to be oriented towards the end user, towards the vulnerable communities. And so another key part of the bill is we've stood up a, we're calling it a non-federal partners council, which is a group of individuals from state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, NGOs, business leaders, academics, et cetera, who would be in a permanent council that would live alongside the chief resilience officer and would be giving kind of a constant input and feedback into this process of developing strategy to make sure that it is actually meeting the needs of locals. And that was a a critical part of the bill for us to have that meaningful involvement kind of woven into the process. A lot more details that I could go into, but that's as high level as, as I can make it there, I think. No, well, I'll get through some of those details. That's some follow-up questions. Well, that, that's very exciting. And I'm trying to think of a hypothetical because it's just legislation right now and it hasn't been passed and we're all hoping it does. But in, in regards to timing, and so you, you can't predict like, will this legislation even pass, but you do have things written within the legislation. Let's just say June 1st, it's passed. And that's a hypothetical. I'm wondering more about, okay, so when could you hire the, the chief um, resilience officer? And then like in, within that time frame, when would you actually deliver? on a plan. So hopefully I'm not putting on the spots. Well, I know you're not saying you're delivering by June 1st, but once, if it were to pass, like the timeline that kind of comes out of that. Yeah, that's a great question. And something we struggle with a lot because you want to give enough time, obviously, to elicit something meaningful, right? You could rush this out the door and have it be a, a strategy that doesn't make a lot of sense. On the flip side, this is an urgent issue and we want to put the chief resilience officer in place as soon as possible. We want the strategy to be out there, you know, helping with work on the ground as soon as possible. So it was kind of a balancing act. We went back and forth as we're developing the bill quite a bit. I'll admit I'm having to reference the text here, but the number we landed on for the chief resilience officer is that that person would need to be appointed within 120 days. So the strategy I don't think I've mentioned yet is an iterative process. So there would be an initial strategy that I think would be the heaviest lift because it would be the first one, just have to develop it from the ground up. But it's uh, the bill would require that that strategy come out with additional updates every three years. This is sort of following the model of something like the National Climate Assessment, where we recognize that we can't just have a single strategy and be done. We need to, to recognize this issue is evolving and, and it needs to be revisited periodically to, to keep it up to date. It might seem like a random number, but we did a lot of sort of careful thinking and math here. The bill requires that the first version of the strategy would be published not later than two years after the date of enactment. And so there's a little bit of a, you have to think about that the bill would pass, the chief resilience officer would be required to come in within 120 days, but two years from the date of the actual passage of the bill, we'd need to see the first version of the strategy, which is, you know, not a ton of time, especially if there's a lag getting the CRO into that position. But like I said, we really wanted to make sure that this happened as quickly as possible, given how urgent this issue is. We'd mentioned, well, you'd mentioned how this is a bipartisan bill. How did that happen? Why? why, uh, Because climate change is still this very controversial subject between the two parties. And so how did you get this one to be a bipartisan bill? Yeah. So I mentioned that for Senator Kuhn's bipartisanship is a, is a huge priority, I think, across all of the work that he does. In, particularly in climate, he's added a lot of value because of his relationships with Republicans. And, and we as a team have been able to identify that common ground, especially through the, the Climate Solutions Caucus, where we can push forward ideas that make meaningful progress, but also stand a chance of, of passing in the Senate. The, the reality is with our current numbers, we have to have members of both parties and we want both parties legislating on this issue. So we spend a lot of time working with our counterparts in Republican offices to figure out ideas that we can work on together to move the needle on this. Resilience has for a long time, I'm sure you've heard this, I'm sure many of the listeners have heard this, it's been talked about as a corner of climate policy that has a lot of opportunity for bipartisanship. 
And this was a big test of that. You know, it's the Republicans that we work with in large part acknowledge that climate change is real and it is happening and that we need to do something about it. On the climate mitigation side of things, I think it gets a little bit stickier in a lot of ways because the solutions to how we're reducing our emissions are loaded with a, with a lot of political challenges. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. I don't have to explain, I don't think, the challenges with, with decarbonization. On the resilient side, we're ultimately talking about communities that are being impacted right now. And I think the disasters driven and exacerbated by climate change that we've seen in the last couple of years that have not, you know, held to any political boundaries are impacting communities throughout the country. And so we found a lot of common ground working with our Republicans on the need to have more urgent, durable resilience policies, recognizing that climate change is here. Even if we shut off our emissions tomorrow, you know, we're still going to be feeling the impacts of these climate hazards. And we and Congress really just needs to do more to act on that. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that has been in the news and was being discussed last summer was one that, you know, my boss was one of the, the members of, of that small group of bipartisan senators that was negotiating the initial version of that bill. And it was a real demonstration, I think, that resilience is a topic that we can agree on. And there's a significant amount of funding in that bill that went towards towards resilience from an infrastructure angle. And so I think that was a great landscape to enter into starting to talk with Republican offices about this bill. And we we worked with the staff really closely from a number of offices, and I think it did get quite a bit better through those conversations. We were able to have really strong bipartisan support in the Senate and with our identical companion bill that Representative Scott Peters introduced with Maria Salazar in the House. Something that's been going on for a while is the National Climate Assessment and congressionally mandated. And so it's been out there. How does that fit into the potential national adaptation plan? Obviously, people don't want redundancies of what's going on out there. Can you explain what role the assessment will play? Yeah, and that's a question that we've had a lot through through the development of this bill. So definitely one that I'm sort of used to, to answering. And I'll mention as well that the, the Global Change Research Act of 1990 that set up the National Climate Assessment was definitely a, a bill that I looked at quite a bit in developing this one. And sort of we're sort of thinking about this effort as a, a, a similar process that's kind of parallel and, and equal and opposite and runs alongside and hand in hand with the National Climate Assessment. You know, the NCA is first and foremost a scientific assessment, and it has grown a lot through time. And there's been a I imagine, and I've, I've heard there has been pressure put maybe on the NCA to be something closer to an adaptation plan to both assess and summarize and synthesize our current understanding of climate science, but also to articulate what we're going to do about it. But at least in my mind, and from a lot of the folks that I've talked to about it, it's really not what the NCA was designed to do. And it is an effective tool for synthesizing the science on climate change. And in my mind, if it's not broken, don't fix it. What we really need is another congressional step in order to take all that vulnerability science, all that great work that happens as part of the NCAA and operationalize it and put it to work. And and we see that process as being through this type of national strategy. We have the NCAA that comes out and tells us what our vulnerabilities are and what our likely climate future might look like. And that's an incredibly important foundational body of literature in order to set up a separate process here of a national plan that describes what we're going to do about that. And so we see them as very closely connected and, and very much relying on the NCA as part of this process, but also a separate effort that wouldn't necessarily muck around with what is, I think, already kind of running really well at USGCRP with the NCA um, as a longstanding, really, really important assessment in the U.S. 
Well, I've talked about the assessment before, and obviously they're doing fantastic work, but I've, I've had issues of just how they kind of get the word out there. And so I think there's potentially a, a huge opportunity that, you know, maybe this is the interface where some of that great work gets down to the local level. They, they'd probably say, Doug, we've got an engagement team where we've kind of been doing this, but I, sometimes it just doesn't necessarily get out there. And so any opportunity for for interfacing with people that could actually use the, the NCA, I, I'm all for. So I, I think this might... Who knows? Might be that kind of opportunity. All right. I want to talk a bit about, and I covered this in the podcast, this two-part series with the executive branch released adaptation action plans for all the agencies and departments. And I did that with Dr. Jesse Keenan from Tulane University. Those were just, we really dug down into, well, he dug down into the, the details there. And how did that influence what you're doing here? You obviously probably followed that closely that these different agencies released these things. And then we assessed that they had different levels of doing things well. How did that influence what you were doing? Yes, I think largely what we've seen at the federal level with adaptation has been individual agencies considering these issues in their own operations and jurisdictions. And that's how we sort of think about adaptation has kind of played out in these sort of silos. And that what we're hoping to do is with this bill is to create more of a coordination mechanism to be looking across those agencies. But that said, I think that the plans that, that came out and the work that the Biden administration is doing on this, that type of work is really foundational and important for what I see as the next step is kind of the bigger, broader plan. We have to understand what each individual agency is doing on climate adaptation, what their priorities are, how they're viewing this within their own operations and jurisdictions and congressional mandates. And they need to show up to the table say, at these working group meetings or meeting with the chief resilience officer to try to develop these strategies with a clear vision, as they see it, of, of how the agency is, is operating in the resilience space, and that all that information needs to be there anywhere. So it seems like there's individual agency plans that, that and I listened to those episodes, it was really helpful hearing kind of Jesse's analysis of, of the merits of different plans. That type of work, I think, is, is really important and foundational. And what we're doing here is kind of the more meta analysis, the next step up. And now that we know what each agency is doing, now let's look across agencies. Because when we do that, we can start to see the gaps and the redundancies and, and the inefficiencies that we aren't necessarily going to elucidate from only having individual agency plans. I'm not putting you on the spot to sort of assess those different plans. We're not, that's not what we're here for. That's what we did. And so I just see the, the National Adaptation Plan and then the working group and how the legislation is structured is an opportunity because various agencies are farther ahead than other agencies. And to me, that these five working groups that would be part of the National Adaptation Plan is an opportunity maybe for some of those agencies to create some consistency and some cohesiveness. And I think that's what you were just describing. But I guess the way it's structured that not all agencies and departments will necessarily participate. And so this is interesting because, you know, the the chief resilience officer is executive branch appointee. They're going to be working there in the White House. And so how they kind of integrate with some of those individual department plans, it can, I understand, I've worked in the government before, it gets a little tricky. How do you kind of bring people along? But not everyone is necessarily going to, and I mean, all the agencies are going to participate in those working groups, right? Right. Right. And there's a lot of authority given, I think, to the chief resilience officer to try to determine those working groups might focus on different topics and to try to determine who's relevant, who are the relevant agencies, what are the relevant programs, who needs to be at the table as part of this kind of conversation, you know, to work on strategies that are relevant to that individual working group. You know, I think that we, one priority was putting the chief resilience officer in the White House, not an individual agency, recognizing how many agencies have, you know, hold some facet of this issue. And so really wanting this to be a kind of top-down cross-agency process by, by rooting that leadership 
in the White House. You know, one of the most, I'll just say personally, the most challenging part of this process for me developing the bill is I have an adaptation background. I've have, you know, talked to a lot of people about this type of policy and what would need to go into a strategy and all of that. The harder part is at times it has been the, the bureaucracy. How do we stand this up in a way that isn't going to run into many of the, you just sort of alluded to challenges of working. This would be a big process working across agencies. Agencies are at different levels of thinking about this issue. They have different levels of appropriations from Congress that are, that, that they can use to think and, and work on adaptation. They have different jurisdictional authorities. And there are just a lot of bureaucratic challenges to this kind of whole of government process. And so did as much thinking as we could about how to sort of facilitate the process give the chief resilience officer lots of deference to sort of use their expertise to, you know, run this coordinating mechanism, however they see fit and however it's going to, to kind of elicit the best result. But it's not going to be necessarily a, a super simple process, right? It's going to take some time and it's going to involve coordination across a lot of different offices. So we've just done our, the best that we can to try to set up the necessary structures to, to give it the best possible chance of success. You know, during the Obama years, I was at the National Park Service and I got to participate in a lot of these high level interagency adaptation. I mean, we did this at one point before, you know, and just in some ways, stage of it, we didn't have a national adaptation plan. But it, like you were saying, the bureaucracy, and again, I don't expect you to comment on this, but I was working at the Department of Interior. We'd have these interagency meetings and like the National Park Service had a top notch adaptation plan. And then you look at some of the other divisions over there and not so much. And they just didn't, well, you go to those meetings and they just didn't feel any pressure to kind of come up with anything better like the park service here's our ferrari and then one of the other divisions they're bringing in their ford pinto and they, they just didn't care and so that with the how i kind of got down even though this is president obama and it was a priority for him and so i think that is a challenge hopefully a chief resilience officer can kind of fight those bureaucratic battles where you're going to get more consistency because some of those different and i'm losing track of how you even call them the different divisions for the department of interior but i'm sure that applies to the epa and all that that's it's just not a priority where it was a priority within div different divisions so i'd hate to yeah. miss that opportunity so yeah. And one of the things that's coming to mind too is early on in the process of developing this bill, I turned to some of our international partners to look at what are other countries doing on this? Our national adaptation plans, how common are they? I had to do a lot of education for myself in terms of what they look like and how they've been set up. And and I know this is something that, that you've covered in the podcast as well, and that Jesse has done a lot of thinking about. And one of the things that came up kind of repeatedly through through that research for me is there are many, you know, many of most of our international partners have this type of national plan, but most of them also don't have the scale of the federal government that we have, that don't have the, the challenges that you were talking about. And so I don't think that there's going to be challenges. It's not going to be a simple process, but we definitely feel it's worth doing. And we're, it's important for us that this not happen alone through executive action, but that this be, like I said earlier, a durable policy that's it's a congressional mandate. There are challenges here, but it has to get done because we can't afford not to do it. It's sort of how we've been thinking about the process. Okay, this go, going back in specifics in the bill too, and you, you come up with the like most bills do that there's a series of definitions that you're using that people can kind of align with. How did you come up with those? You know, the issues like climate change or even adaptive capacity, you know, not everyone's in agreement on various definitions. How did you specifically decide to, to use those things within the legislation? Yeah, it's a great question. A common practice writing bills like this is to look for existing definitions that are particularly in statute, but but at least in bills that have already been introduced and potentially marked up by the Committee of Jurisdiction, that the committee staff have a lot of expertise. And as you know, the process of developing a definition for something like climate resilience is a big process. And it's going to involve 
working with a lot of different stakeholders and, and talking to different folks and, and a lot of time and effort to kind of hone that definition. So many of the definitions come directly from existing bills that have passed into law. On the other hand, some definitions we're, we tweaked a little bit because each bill is specific and we wanted to make sure that the definitions we had in our bill made the most sense given that this is, for example, a resilience focus bill as opposed to mitigation. And in places where we designed new definitions, we're looking primarily for robust existing definitions that are out there from USGCRP, from the IPCC, from various glossaries at, at really well-vetted organizations that have done a lot of work on this. And, and so some are kind of combinations of those definitions. Some are sort of deferring more directly to those definitions. And then some are a little bit more organic. So there are particular facets of the bill that were real high priorities for us. And I'll just cite one as an example. We've obviously done a lot on disaster resilience in the United States. It's something that we're thinking about a lot. It's a really high priority, but a lot of folks in the adaptation field are talking a little bit more urgently about the need to focus on slow onset climate hazards much more than we have been. That issues like sea level rise, we saw you know, the recent NOAA report come out that kind of really highlight how much of a problem sea level rise is going to be in this country coming up in the next two decades. And we really wanted to emphasize for states like Delaware and Alaska, Senator Murkowski is our lead Republican, oftentimes these slow onset hazards are what's impacting our communities more than actual punctuated rapid onset disasters. And so throughout the bill, there's a requirement that these this national strategy consider who's managing slow onset hazards because it can kind of fall through the cracks at the federal level in certain cases. So it's, it's emphasized throughout the bill, but we felt it was really important to also, as far as I know, for the first time in any bill, at least from my search, is introduced at the federal level, articulate a definition of, of slow onset hazards that's, that's really specific and gives, and gives specific examples so that it's really clear what our priorities are here when we talk about looking at those hazards in addition to the more classic kind of disasters. So it was a mix of the definitions. And I think you know, we the bill has been referred to the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee and and the committee staff will, you know, we're hoping to get kind of through the next step with the bill and have the committee's attention on it for, for potentially a, a markup, it's called. And we will very much work with the committee staff and defer to their expertise in this space um, and, and legislation that they've worked on in the past and, and the definitions that they've already developed. So some of those definitions could change. But that's kind of how we came to the ones that you see in the text as it was introduced. Okay, it sounds like you've thought a lot about what's the value of this and, and kind of hypothetical situations on how this plug into different areas. And let's say we're five years out, bill passes, and you've, you have the officer, the plan has been drafted with the different working groups. And I was sort of visualizing myself is that what happens out there, like a hurricane hits, and then, you know, FEMA plays a big role in that. And it's out there. And I just wonder how you hypothetically that you have a national adaptation plan, but sometimes when sort of on the ground, what's actually happening out there with grants and how you're helping people rebuild and all these different decisions in the immediate aftermath, I, I would hope that the national adaptation plan would be referred to, that it would be integrated in, in all those different things. And so did you kind of think about it, those kind of real world examples of where could you literally apply that adaptation plan? Yeah, for sure. And I'll start my answer. Hopefully this doesn't seem like a, any type of cop-out, but a big emphasis on the bill is about the the kind of proactive, pre-disaster, pre-hazard work that a lot of adaptation professionals have been calling for a long, long time that we really need to shift away from this post-disaster kind of reactive work and more towards building resilience ahead of that type of event. And so that's a, a, a central core principle to the bill is doing that kind of work up front. And just a few examples of kind of what would be required in this strategy that I would hope would, would lead to, to better kind of 
you know, proactive work on resilience before this hypothetical disaster. A review of federal funding, looking across agencies at the funding available for vulnerable communities to do adaptation work. And rather than, again, considering what one individual agency is doing, have a coordination mechanism to look across all agencies to try to highlight those gaps, to try to identify what types of projects aren't being funded that are resulting in a higher level of vulnerability on the ground, right? The strategy directs the chief resilience officer to identify ways of directing resources to the most vulnerable communities. It sounds obvious, but it's something that doesn't always happen with our current procedures. The communities might have a high level of vulnerability, but might fail to to get the necessary resources to adapt because of challenges accessing funds or cost-benefit analyses that that don't prioritize their land area, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, in these communities that are truly the most vulnerable to that hurricane, the hope is that we'd be better directing resources there for adaptation, utilizing natural infrastructure where appropriate, designing metrics and indicators for resilience. This is this is one that's required in, in the strategy for the chief resilience officer to consider. I know you you've on the show talked about metrics quite a bit. And it's just such a hot topic in resilience. And from my experience working with chief resilience officers and a lot of folks at the state level, there is this real thirst for better ways to measure the resilience of communities, the impact of, of you know, certain types of adaptation activities, the response to, to a disaster like, like you're showing. What, what is the resilience of the community? How have, we, how have our actions built that resilience? And how can we measure it in a way that's we can then communicate to to other vulnerable communities or use in the future to help them. And so the hope here is that we would we would have those sort of metrics better designed and stood up so that we're doing great work before the disaster, we're measuring what's happening during the disaster to understand and kind of tweak, and that we can, you know, use that information for the future. But in terms of kind of the disaster has hit in this hypothetical and and we're trying to enter into the recovery and think about you know specific ways that the strategy would help. We've emphasized throughout the bill the real, real need to think about transformative change, transformative adaptation that got into a lot of philosophical conversations about how we define resilience when I was working with experts on this. And, and just heard from a lot of folks that if you think about resilience in the sort of classic ecological framework, we're talking about a community in stasis that has some stress applied and and what is the capacity of that community or the resilience of that community in terms of bouncing back to its pre-existing state of of rest and security. In the case of a vulnerable community, you know, we might not want to rebuild back to where we were before, maybe with a few band-aids. We want to think about when a disaster strikes and our community is impacted and we're in a phase of recovery, we want to have strategies and policies already developed and in place so that we can take a look at that community and figure out how to rebuild in a way that's transformative and that elevates their overall level of resilience, lowers the overall level of vulnerability in the future rather than returning to what we had before. And so the bill would require agencies to be working together to across agencies, across jurisdictions to think more about that and to um, have the, those plans and strategies in place for when a disaster strikes and we're, we start talking about kind of what the recovery process is going to look like. Dr. Susie Moser, if you're listening out there, transformational adaptation was mentioned. And so you need to take a look at this legislation. 
give Cam some feedback. All right. So if you are, I'm going <laughs> to. All right, Cam, I want to kind of pivot sort of away from the bill a little bit. I have a couple more areas that I want to talk about, but just really quickly, can you tell us the, you know, you've sort of discussed the status, but like what, I mean, you got to get a house bill and then sort of timelines. And I know you can't make predictions. Well, it's going to pass by X date, but like, just let people know generally what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty and uh, we we were so kind of laser focused on getting it introduced with with bipartisan support. That was a an exciting first, you know, we checked the first box there. And so we've done that in both the House and the Senate and and the bills are as I mentioned, they are identical on both sides and and bipartisan on both sides. And so uh, on our side we've been referred as I mentioned to the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. And so our next step is to, you know, Senator Coons is not a member of the committee which means that we are working with committee staff to just try to bring attention to the bill and hopefully move towards the committee taking the bill up for a markup that essentially means they're going to be taking a closer look and the the committee itself will decide whether to you know push it through the next steps to hopefully get it to to an actual vote as part of a, a broader package of bills so that's kind of where we're at now and i think one of the most helpful things that you can do with this type of effort is just continue to build support through co-sponsors and so we are continuing to to do outreach to other offices to let them know about the bill and to explain how important it would be for their state and their constituents to kind of just build a coalition of members who have co-sponsored the bill. And just to demonstrate to the committee that we do have strong bipartisan support and that if this does go through a markup, it stands a good chance of being voted on favorably at that point. And so that's kind of where we're at right now and similar process happening on the other side in the, in the House. And we're hopeful that we will get a committee markup to serve our next step. And of course, very little, you know, you hear in the news about these big giant packages of, of bills that are that move through Congress because very little moves these days through what we call regular order and individual bill coming to the floor and being voted on. Much more likely is a bill like this would get swept up and attached to a bigger, broader package of bills that that makes everything in there a little bit less controversial sometimes because there's a lot of policies that people agree on. This is a bipartisan policy that a lot of people agree on. And so we refer to that in Congress as a vehicle. So we will be working with committee to try to get a markup and working with anyone who who has ideas about how to identify a good vehicle that would help this bill to move. And and our hope is to obviously is do all of that as, as quickly as we possibly can, as, as sort of always the, the goal when you're working on this type of thing in Congress. Well, if there's any tax cut legislation out there, why don't you just stick it on that? Because it's your best shot of getting this passed. Um, uh, I don't know if any's in the works. Okay, that's fantastic. All right, I, I want to pivot a little bit here, just sort of wrapping up in regards to the legislation. I brought you on. I, I have... These are some recommendations that I have. I, I read through it. You know, you come on America Tabs. She's like, I, I thought this was a great piece of legislation. Just some really quickly. I want you to get your pen and paper out and you're going to take some notes on like, okay, these are sounds good. We're going to add this. It'll be in the version sometime Monday. So I, I get it. I get how, how fast things work. We had briefly talked about this before, but I, it's not implicit within the legislation about sort of a national communication adaptation plan or adaptation communication plan. I think that's really important. I think. In regards to how much you're really going to accomplish in regards to implementation, it's going to be a mixed bag until people kind of really figure things out. And, you know, they're still figuring out the National Climate Assessment decades on. But I think with the communication plan, there could be a lot of educating the public in the short term, being very aggressive about that and not shying away about that. And just making that implicit within the legislation that that needs to be in there. So you're going to hear, obviously, communications, my thing. I would love to see that actually written out there as sort of an outcome that needs to be focused on pretty quickly. 
And I'm going to go through a few of these. All right, Cam, you just bear with me. Sure and thing. you're probably familiar with some of the legislation, I think, Build Back Better. There was, I don't even know where they're sticking, but the idea of creating a climate core, I don't know if it'd be modeled on AmeriCorps, but these people out there doing climate work, resilience work would be a key part of that. I don't know if you guys thought about that much, but the notion of empowering this chief resilience officer, I know they're working with these working groups, but not a lot of staff, not a lot of budget, but things that are outcomes of those implementation plans that, well, you have these climate core, give them you're integrating things, right? What are those guys out there doing? If they, if they manage to create those, the, the core, what are they doing? Or are you just going to rely on the states or local governments to determine it? Or let's integrate it with this national adaptation plan. I think there's a huge opportunity there. And then this is kind of a, an odd one, but I worry. So it's a chief resilience officer. You know, I have my bias. I think it should be called chief adaptation officer. I don't know if you're familiar, like the, the whole 100 resilient cities initiative that's kind of gone defunct and all these chief resilience officers were hired at the city level. You've kind of familiar with that? Yes, a little bit. Right. So what happened with, you know, some of them were doing amazing work, doing climate work, doing climate resilience work, but some of them, I think there was mission creep or the cities did not really understand what climate resilience was. And those positions basically became chief sustainability officers, right? That there is a difference between sustainability and adaptation. And I think it's pretty clear within your legislation that this is about climate change. This is about adaptation, but that's always a, a bit of, of a worry that sometimes if you don't really know what you're doing or other people kind of, well, no, we can do all this sustainability stuff too with what you're doing, that it just takes over. And I think it muddles the mission of what adapting to climate change is really about. And so those are just a few things, but those are, <laughs> it kind of came to mind when I'm reading, like there, there's these opportunities that tighten it and you, you talked about durability. So that's my yeah. two cents. If you had any sort of feedback I appreciate on that. It. Yeah, I do. I do. I love it. I Yeah, I think so. Let me go through them actually. But on the communication part at the beginning, I think that's so vital and, and definitely part of the bill we could build out a little bit more. I think we were so laser focused on communicating about available funding and policies and opportunities directly to affected communities, particularly thinking about municipal officials and, and consultants and, and, and practitioners, you know, and so uh, there's elements of communication in the bill about just making these resources kind of more readily available and making sure folks kind of know what's out there, but it falls short of a broader kind of public communication about what this process would actually look like. And I think you're so right that that kind of work is important and, and definitely something we could weave in a little bit more. Love the Climate Core idea because my boss, Senator Coons, introduced the Civilian Climate Corps Act in the Senate shortly after I started with him a year ago. So it's a, a huge, huge priority for him. He is a, a big proponent of national service and thinks that this is a really great opportunity to mobilize you know, the nation's youth to go out and, and work on issues of climate change. I had the really incredible opportunity to get to write the portion of that bill that actually sort of articulated what these core members would do. And of course, I come with my my adaptation bias. And so a lot of opportunities, I think, for a climate core to, to work on the mitigation side, planting trees, things like that. But I got really into the details on how would these core members be boots on the ground in communities helping, you know, that so often lack the kind of necessary workforce capacity to, to adapt as much as they'd like to. How can core members fill that void and help out with that effort? And so totally with you on that separate bill, obviously, than this one, but certainly one that we support and are pushing for as much as possible through any mechanism we can. And yeah, on on adaptation, chief adaptation officers and sort of your, your thoughts there, I think it's definitely something we thought about and something that we need to just continue to be careful about. Adaptation can get the short end of the stick. If it gets lumped in with 
topics like you're saying with sustainability or with climate policy more generally, we see the mitigation side of things suck up a lot of the time and the resources in comparison to adaptation. And so definitely, I mean, with this bill as a whole, but but certainly with identifying a specific person to be CRO, we were really trying to give adaptation its own seat at the table and really delineate this as separate from the sustainability work and the mitigation work that the feds might be getting into otherwise. And and I agree, I think we could always always kind of do more to try to tweak the language and, and make sure that really shines through so that so that we don't miss the mark on that at all, because it is just so important. Well, fantastic. And just back to the communication plan, every great communication initiative has a catchy title. So go feel free just to call it America Adapts. And I think it's, <laughs> they sort of wrap it to be easy for people to kind of remember. And yeah, that, that's fine on my end. So. That sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, it's kind of catchy. All right. We're, we're going to wrap this up just learning a little bit about you. You've done some amazing work there. I just want to talk because people are very interested in we, when we hear about legislation and the people in Washington, D.C. working on these things, you know, it, it's amazing the, the different backgrounds of people doing it. And so I think learning how you kind of got into the adaptation space, give us a little bit about your background, like, you know, educational background and kind of how did you get grounded even in the field of adaptation? Because you didn't necessarily get a, a master's in adaptation. What What is that? What's your background? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So let's see, I'm a young millennial. And, and so still relatively early in my career and kind of came up through school in the an interesting time in, in the climate conversation, you know, an, an inconvenient truth. I remember came out a few months before I started high school. And it was really a time when climate was becoming, you know, dinner table conversation. But thinking back, it was a lot about climate science and the uncertainty and are humans to blame and, you know, a totally different phase of, of climate conversation than we're in now. But that really drove me to want to be a climate scientist. And, and that's sort of what I went to school for in undergrad, went to a small little arts college up in Maine called Bowdoin and studied earth and oceanographic science and got a chance to just do all sorts of cool work with kind of paleoclimatology and mucking around in subarctic permafrost peatlands, kind of measuring carbon fluxes under warming conditions and just got to do some really cool work and was pretty certain I wanted to go do a, you know, a PhD in paleoclimatology. And that's what I wanted to do. But I made a really formative decision after undergrad to take some time off and get some work experience sort of for the first time, which was a great decision because it sort of changed my, the whole trajectory of, of where I wanted to take my career. I got to, it's always a little tricky to figure out what you're going to do with a bachelor's degree in climate science. You know, it, it's just a tough position to be in, not quite a, a scientist that's going to contribute to the research directly, but you have all these great skills that you want to apply. I found a great home for myself in state government up in Maine. And so I, Got to work for a couple agencies, really working on some of the state's first climate, particularly coastal resilience resources, statewide sea level rise maps and shoreline erosion and hurricane surge modeling, which was really cool to be part of developing those those products that are you know still being used for planning today. But the really critical part is I also got to deliver those resources to the vulnerable communities to, to go help present to those communities and and hear from the homeowners there and the community leaders and the municipal officials about their fears and their concerns and their needs. And in a lot of cases, those are the kind of the first times that these towns were seeing their their downtown underwater or their their homes or their bridges at, at risk from sea level rise. And so that was sort of formative for me and really made me realize that I wanted to keep one foot in the science world, but get to see that science through to its application and, and to work more with the communities themselves. And, and that's how I ended up in this kind of adaptation space. I went back to grad school eventually because it, I really felt like when you start trying to be a, an adaptation professional, at least in my experience, I felt like having the scientific background wasn't quite enough. It's such an interdisciplinary field. 
I felt deficient in my understanding of law and policy and economics and all these other disciplines that are so relevant to the conversation. So I, I went for a, a really interdisciplinary degree down at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke. It was a Master of Environmental Management that focused on, you know, I got to hone a lot of my scientific skills, but also spent a lot of time at the law school, you know, studying economics, studying public policy. And so just got a little bit more well-rounded and, and sort of shifted a lot more into kind of the policy conversation after grad school, rather than it's been a while since I've been in a kind of purely scientific position. And that's how I ended up here in the Senate, partially because I've heard a lot of kind of unified calls for certain things that we need to be doing in adaptation. And and it seems like there's so much great work happening in the kind of resilience policy world, but it just didn't seem to necessarily be reaching Congress. And it was, it's just, it's frustrating. And I wanted to have a better understanding of how work gets done, you know, how laws get passed that make a difference and sought out this fellowship, this Canals Marine Policy Fellowship to kind of get into the, the belly of the beast and see how the sausage gets made. And I just found a tremendous boss and a tremendous team who gave me a, a huge amount of latitude and autonomy to develop this legislation. I should shout out as well just how how much this wasn't a, a process that I did by myself. You know, my immediate boss, Anna Yelverton, is just so supportive for me in the legislative process and how to actually write a bill and got to work really closely with staff for some of the other offices as well. There's a a fellow that in Senator Murkowski's office named Maya Becker, who's a, a brilliant glaciologist. She's doing the same program that I was. And I so I knew her through the program and she became a real champion of this bill. And we worked on it together for months and months and months to make it better. And so just a real team effort there. And then we had to, you know, we wanted to do a, an identical bill in the house. And so Representative Scott Peters from California is leading that bill over there. And, and his staffer, Tom Erb, became a like a really central team member as well. And so we were really pushed this, pushed this along as a team and had a ton of outside help from organizations and just too many people to mention. But it's just really exciting to be where we are now, have it introduced with such strong support from from both sides of the aisle and just excited about to see you know what happens next. Well, even at the Nicholas School, the, the, and I've had this conversation quite a bit, there's, there's actually not a lot of coursework around adaptation or you're getting a degree in adaptation. How did you catch yourself up around this field? Or did you, I mean, so many of us were, were generalists, right? And you kind of pick things up. So what, what did you feel were great resources? I think a lot of people would like to know that. Yeah, for sure. You're, you're right. There's there's not a lot. I think it's probably growing now, but there's not a lot even at a program like that. There's not a lot of coursework specifically on adaptations. So you sort of have to see the value of, if, well, if I take a course in economics, can I understand, you know, maybe cost benefit analysis to determine how the you know beach nourishment sand is being allocated or something you, know, you have to find the ways to to learn the relevant pieces from the different disciplines but it's it's a challenge for sure and so definitely have to kind of chart your own course there sometimes in grad school and then just turn to outside sources of information as much as you can so been listening to America adapts for years and really relying on kind of hearing from experts on this podcast as a as a real you know source of information for me and just keeping up with as many of these organizations that are putting out great resources on, on adaptation as I can. We in Congress have this have incredible, incredible access to resources that I've never experienced before. We have the Congressional Research Service that you can task with, you know, looking into topics for you and they'll they'll return this incredibly well vetted, you know, research products that you then use, you know, to to push forward your legislation. And so I've been really thankful for the resources that that I've had working on the Hill to to help me through through this effort. Well, I'm glad the the podcast gives you some use that way. You know, when I first started in the early aughts, I 
was fortunate actually to be in Australia and a lot of other countries were really doing adaptation early on. And a lot of my like early education around the issue was just on based on what other countries were doing. And so there's so many more resources, even in the last five years. So it is a good time, but I think the universities are still lacking in regards to like committing to this top. Well, if you're just a generalist in this area or like, it, it, is it a field or isn't it? And so I, I'm always trying to encourage that it is a field. It's a cohesive space. Yes, I agree. Wait, sorry, can I add one thing? I don't know of if course. you can weave it into the sources of information. Yeah, go ahead. The other place that if, if folks are looking to kind of keep up with, with news and resources on this that I really highly recommend is to check out the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. I'm an, an ASAP member and Beth and, and Rachel over there are just such a great resource of information that the organization is doing so much great work and it's a great community for, for adaptation professionals as well. So if, if you're looking for to kind of keep your finger on the pulse and, and get more involved in the conversation, we definitely, you know, recommend, you know, deciding and, and seeing if you want to kind of get involved over there. Okay, Cam. So the lifespan of a Senate or House staffer isn't very long. Not that you don't want to keep working there and doing great things, but what do you expect to be doing in five, 10 years? What's a career wise, what would you like to do? Yeah, interesting question. I, you know, one of the things I've been really surprised by working working in this position is that there are so many outside organizations that are a resource to to staffers on in climate policy, really generally. But almost all of them are focused on mitigation. And so, if you're if you're trying to write legislation or or you're considering legislation that, that another office is working on, or you have questions on carbon pricing or renewable energy sources or, or grid decarbonization or whatever it might be. There are so many experts out there that are just queuing up to, to support you and to support your work to, to hopefully pass you know bills into law to make federal policy on that topic. There's so few, so few organizations doing that on the resilience side. And I think it's this huge gap that I've just been really blown away by that I don't think will be around for that much longer. I think that organizations are going to start to realize the critical need for more support and more thinking. It's not to diminish the great work of those that are working on this and are trying to help Senate staffers and, and you know congressional staffers on adaptation. There are definitely people out there, but I think there's a there's a real need to do more. And and I've been really excited by this time working on this policy and seeing how much support we can get on both sides of the aisle. And I'm really hoping to stick around in this conversation and and be sort of adjacent to to Congress and and helping to push forward resilience policy that's in law that's durable that's there for good that's that's where I would like to be more than anywhere else so I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we continue to see organizations you know put more resources towards this topic and and kind of expand their workforce a little bit to to bring really critical support to Congress and to agencies that are working on this on this type of policy development Okay, Cam, you've been a listener for a while, so you know the last question, and I'm going to kind of qualify this. I, I want to give an open invitation to Senator Coons after the legislation passes. It would be sort of a celebratory thing, so just throw that out there, mention it to the boss. But if you could recommend someone to come on the podcast, who would it be? I Man, I should have come prepared for this because I knew that you're right. It's always on there. Um, let me see. Yeah, I have I have two people that I think would, would be a great addition to the conversation. The first is somebody I worked for at the U.S. Climate Alliance. This is the, the coalition of states that pulled together after President Trump pulled out from the Paris Agreement and kind of agreed to uphold the that agreement. The subnational level, it's grown now to about 25 states. Really brilliant woman named Jen Phillips, who runs the Resilience Working Group, which is essentially the chief resilience officers or their functional equivalent from from all these 25 states. And I had the chance to work for her for about six months as a fellow. 
and just learned so much about the needs of the CROs, the needs of the states. And she has such a uh, such access to so many minds working at this at the state and local level. I think her perspective is just really valuable. The other person who I somebody I worked with really closely on this bill has just been a really key and, and helpful ally is is Mark Roop, who was formerly with the Environmental Defense Fund and is now heading up the Georgetown Climate Center's adaptation program. And he just has a really interesting background. He's he's done a lot of work in Congress and in state government and has a you know a law background, but is really focused on on adaptation and he just has done so much interesting work. He was a huge resource for the bill. And I think that he would, you know, potentially have a lot to say. All right. Two excellent choices. Well, Cam, this is fantastic. I wish you luck. This is important work that you're doing. And there's a whole bunch of us out in the adaptation space that want you to succeed with this national adaptation plan and this position and everything associated with it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Cam for coming on the podcast. What a fantastic development, a bipartisan bill that would establish a national adaptation plan and appoint a chief resilience officer. The legislation hasn't passed yet, but the fact they have Republican support is a great sign this is a priority. It sounds like there might be some modifications to the bill, which is to be expected. If you're interested in supporting the bill, I'm sure there are opportunities for you to write as an individual or your organization supporting the legislation. I still have my biases toward climate communication. The plan itself will likely have its supporters and detractors. Just elevating the concept of a national adaptation plan is critical. We need the public to start thinking about this issue immediately. I still want to see a national communication strategy as part of all this. People take that for granted, and it would be a huge wasted opportunity if it's not a key responsibility for a future chief resilience officer. And it's also very encouraging to see the next generation of adaptation professionals like Cam playing such a large role in setting the future of climate adaptation. So Cam is wrapping up his year-long fellowship soon with Senator Kuhn's office. He'll be looking for a good spot to land. If you're interested in talking to Cam, reach out or reach out to me and I'll put you in touch. I mean, getting someone on staff that was the primary author of a national adaptation plan, that would be a good thing. So step it up, you adapters, and find some opportunities. Other business, I want to acknowledge some new adaptation staffing at the White House. Congrats to Marissa McInnes and Lori Carey Cathera. They are the new co-directors for Climate Adaptation and Resilience at the White House's Council on Environmental Quality, the primary policy writing shop on environmental issues. Good luck, guys. Glad this issue is being elevated in the White House. Okay, some final housekeeping. If you are interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I go on location, record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you to have a wider diversity of guests to participate in it. You will work with me to identify the experts that represent the work you're doing. I've done these with multiple groups, universities like University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, NRDC. I'm working with them right now. World Wildlife Fund, I've done multiple episodes with Harvard, University of Florida, and some corporate clients. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. So most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, very evergreen, much more so than a webinar or white paper or conference proceeding. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty exciting since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Trust me, I've done both. Oh boy. Okay, now please reach out. Let's have a conversation. 
And if you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, definitely take a look in the podcast library. We've covered a lot of ground that will catch you up on many of the most important adaptation issues. Managed retreat, climate impacts on the LGBT community, climate reparations, climate finance, national security, indigenous issues, legal implications associated with sea level rise, nature-based solutions to resilience. That is just scratching the surface of what's in the archive. Go take a look. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Guys, I speak a lot. Really enjoy speaking to people. I do some keynote presentations. It's a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own personal experiences in adaptation. You can contact me at the website, americadapts.org. So guys, you know, I say this every time. I love hearing from you. Please reach out, email me, tell me what you do. It's the best way for me to understand who my listeners are and the work that you do and affects the content that I create. So definitely reach out. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. I've established some professional friendships this way, people reaching out to me. It's been fantastic. And via LinkedIn and via email, please do. I love hearing from you. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.